This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Man, Mark McDonald is back. Mark, you are on my podcast so often that that it feels like we are, wait for it, family. Ah, <laughs> uh, you got a good tie in there. <laughs> um, we were just chatting now about the last uh, conversation you and I had. And you were just saying that it's, that it's a wonderful thing when you know that women, not just say my own wife, but women in general, uh, you know, listen to the ideas coming from a man because these days, you know, it's mansplaining. It's a, it's a bad thing. Yes. I believe that the ideas that I have are not ones that I've invented. They're ones that I perhaps put words to that other people mm. have touched on philosophers, politicians, cultural warriors, all different types of people. And I don't think that they're new. I think I'm really just rediscovering and speaking about ideas that I think are, are central to civilization and are central in terms of an, an, an archetypal level, you know, the archetypal man, woman, family. I don't think that that is a creation. It's really more of an expression of what is both normal, healthy, and necessary. So when people listen to these ideas that I speak about and they respond positively to them, whether it's something such as, uh, yes, I've felt this way all my life, or, you know, I never thought about it, but the way that you describe it makes sense to me. Now I understand why I have and my friends have so many problems that we face in our lives. It really resonates with the, the accuracy of what I'm saying, uh, which I believe mm -hmm. is present in my ideas. And also, as I just said to you, uh, the opposite is true. Uh, people will hear them. They won't really think about them, but they'll react to them in a, a vile, negative, angry, personalized way, which used to trouble me a lot. Uh, I, I used to take that very personally because I was uh, the object of their derision. I, my ideas were being attacked. Now what I, what I realize is that I'm just simply a stand-in. I, I represent something that they haven't yet come to terms with, which is reality, largely speaking, and they're living a really miserable life. People who react negatively uh, with, with emotion and anger to the ideas of men and women and family uh, are unhappy people because you cannot lead a happy life if you are opposed to those ideas. What do you think is going on, though? I mean, why... Why would people be so unhappy at ideas that have been around for thousands of years? Well, the most obvious contemporary explanation is brainwashing. Mm. It's not that people need to learn how these concepts are important and necessary. They have to unlearn them. And I think that we have been in the West, largely speaking, in a battle for the last few decades and certainly the last few years where the victim, the object of the attacks uh, are these ideas, these foundational ideas and concepts. And they're so deeply rooted, as deeply rooted as biological man and biological woman that they, it takes a lot to unroot them. How much does it take to convince a large sector of your population that it makes sense and is in fact necessary socially, politically, legally, culturally to rename, re-gender biological men and women, or to deny that 
a man who's six foot three and 200 pounds and all muscle does not have an inherent biological advantage in swimming against a woman who's half his size at a university swim meet. That takes a lot because that's not a intellectually complex idea. I was in Orlando last weekend with Dr. Peter McCullough, who you've also spoken with, and we had a chat after the the, the, the presentation that we gave with Dr. Ben Carson and the next day with Dr. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Governor Ron DeSantis, one of your, one of your uh, aspirational buddies, and he gave the <laughs> keynote address. Wonderful group of people, wonderful group of, of intellectual ideas. And he said something that really struck me. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. He said, we don't call out the absurd anymore. Mm. We've stopped calling out the absurd. We have, I think, in our, in our nature, we have a reflexive res response, a, a reflexive action that we take to what is obviously absurd. And those reflexes have been overridden. We don't even respond, not in a thoughtful way, we don't even respond reflexively to absurdity anymore. If we did, we would have called out all of this nonsense from the very beginning, all these masks and shots and closing things down and shutting down schools, all of that stuff. We didn't even do that. So mm -hmm. we're, we're so primed now to act reflexively against statements that are so obviously reasonable, like families are the foundation of our civilization, and to not respond with, this is absurd when we hear things like, it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's even better for a woman to have a child by herself, to use artificial insemination and never have a father because that is empowering to the woman. And we nod our heads and we say, yes, that, that sounds absolutely great. No, it doesn't. It's ridiculous. It's not a political issue. It's a human issue. What is a family? How do you define a family? Well, obviously, the traditional definition of a family is two parents and a child. And those two parents must be a man and a woman. You can't have two parents who are both the same sex and not have a duplicative effort. The, the roles that the father and the mother play are just as important as the roles that the husband and the wife, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the man and the woman play. They are not uh, identical. So yes, you can certainly have two women raising a child, two men raising a child, and two is certainly better than one, but mm -hmm. they don't complement one another because there are distinctive offerings that a man, meaning a father offers, and a mother, woman offers to a child, and the the, the opposite sex cannot make that offering. So ideally, a family is two opposite sexes with a child. Now, obviously, of course, there are deaths, there are divorces. So does it mean that if there's not a father or there's not a mother that there's no family possible? No, of course not. But it means that the child is hobbled. A child has a far, far greater chance of success when that child is raised in a two-parent household. This is not my opinion, this is a fact. Even, even Barack Obama said this in his famous speech 15 years ago. I don't remember the multiples, those seven, 14, 17 times, more likely to be successful as an adult, a child, if there's two parents in the household. And it was success defined as uh, not going to jail, graduating from high school, and then getting married and having a family. And it was many, many multiples of one. So even he admitted that. So that we've gone against that now and said that, no, there's absolutely no advantage in having two parents in the household is absolute nonsense. And that shows you how far we've come from even the Barack Obama era, because now he's gone so full left and he represents such a full mm -hmm. left movement. And when I say full left, I mean completely counter family, counter cultural, counter biology. I remember when I was promoting this conversation, 
um, but maybe about a week ago, someone sent me a message saying, yeah, but how can you say that? You know, that's very backwards. Um, society has changed. I grew up with a single, with a single mom and I'm fine today. Oh, yes. There are a lot of people who do. Uh, there are a lot of people who go to prison and they get out of prison and they form a business, a nonprofit. Uh, there's a group in L.A. that is called Homeboys uh, Charity. And Homeboys Charity collects money and they redistribute money to uh, gang members. And I believe they sell uh, tortilla chips. They have a little stand and they sell tortilla chips. I think it's tortilla chips. And it's run by former gang members. They're former home, homeboys, you know, from the hood, mostly, uh, you know, Latino. And it's not black. It's mostly you know, Latino, Mexican, Guatemalan, El Salvadoran. They do great work. And a lot of them, most of them, all of them actually were arrested and in prison. Does that mean that prison is a pathway to success? Of course not. So that's a really uh, red herring kind of argument. The fact that there are outliers and exceptions uh, does not in any way invalidate the rule. Um, there's no reason to strive for something that is putting you at less of a chance of success, and that is a single parent. That's clear. You, uh, you mentioned gangs. Uh, is there a correlation between single parent upbringing or uh, broken homes and kids becoming gang members? Oh, completely. Uh, look at history in the United States, for example, and this is true in England <laughs> as well, but in the United States, I just know the data better. Uh, before the uh, the great... Uh, welfare state began uh, after World War II in the United States, uh, blacks, black Americans were more likely to be employed, less likely to be in prison, uh, and uh, led overall safer lives, less drug abuse, all of those factors. They also happened to have a very high rate of two-parent household. They weren't necessarily the wealthiest, and obviously there were uh, legal, there was legal discrimination against blacks, uh, certainly pre-World War II and, and somewhat after. But they were doing better on, on most scales than whites were. And then what happened? Then the progressive era began. The United States began paying women to not get married. If you didn't have a husband in the house, you got welfare. And also encouraging men to abandon their responsibilities of being a father by allowing them to leave. And once that cycle began, all of a sudden, the black core family unit started to disintegrate. And now we have over 80% black Americans born to single parent households, most of them fatherless households. That correlates exactly with the rise in crime, the rise in drug sure. use, all of that. And that's sure. not really a disputable point, because if you look at the other races, it's the opposite. It's not just that this is sort of an outlier. White Americans also have been going in the same direction, but they've been going the same direction somewhat more slowly. There was, uh, I think, 20% single-parent household uh, pre-World War II in the U.S., which was considered a crisis. There was even a, a book written about it, the crisis of single-parent households in the U.S. at 20%. Well, now blacks, it's over 80%, and look at the crisis there. It's, it's a complete catastrophe. Why does it happen like that across ethnicity or, or cultural groups? I don't think it is cultural. I really think it is the government that instituted this. Um, the welfare state uh, was was largely aimed at uh, what were considered the, the victims of the mm. U.S., which were black Americans at that, at that time. Because of uh, true 
discrimination and a history of racism, et cetera, in, in the United States. So the intention, of course, was good. The intention was nice. The intention was on a, a macro level to be what we want to do on a micro level. We want to be kind and, well, and generous to our neighbors. And on the micro level, kindness is a lovely quality. On the macro level, kindness is awful because simple kindness on a microcosm does not require any wisdom. You don't need to be wise to bring a cake over to your neighbor because uh, he's suffering from uh, a depression. He lost a family member and you want to cheer him up to open a door for someone, to give your seat to somebody, a stranger on a train, to hand some money to somebody who you know will use it properly because he's got some problems financially. That doesn't require wisdom. That's just instinct. That's just goodness. Yeah. But take that to a large level, take that to a national or international level. That, that path to the disaster that we're in now was paved with good intentions. The idea that we can simply tax our way out of poverty by stealing money from every, every citizen, sending it to a centralized power, the government, and then redistributing it to people who are supposedly deserving through a vast bureaucracy, mm -hmm. that has not done well. That has not allowed us to succeed. It's actually done the opposite. So I think one of the problems is that it's, it's not that there's an evil quality that's trying to destroy the family, at least not at the beginning. I think there might be now. It's that there were good intentions on the part of really good people, especially here in the United States. Most people in the U.S. are really good-hearted, very kind, very generous people. Mm -hmm. And they were derailed by enlisting the power of the state rather than harnessing the power of the community, the family, the community, the church, the civic institutions. And once that that is divorced. Once you divorce your personal good intentions from the direct outcome and you, you give that responsibility over to a third party like the state, that's where I think things start to fall apart. And that's where the families get destroyed. And if you look back at the 20th century, mm. all of the large <clears throat> despotic states, the communist states, the Stalinists, the, the Maoists, uh, all of those, those large conglomerate nations, they all wound up losing family. And I believe it's because they turned their backs as a nation on the importance of the community to be responsible for itself. And they then gave that responsibility to the state. And once you do that, you, the individual, are no longer responsible for anything, including your own family, including your own community. So yes, one that's going to trigger a few people, but is there a correlation between the rise in the working mother and uh, damaged kids? Definitely. And this will trigger a lot of people because women have been taught intrinsically to rail at anyone, women or men, who even raise the question that it is not in their best interest to climb the corporate ladder and to work full time. Because women are supposed to be able to do everything. The idea of the choice a woman can choose, whether it's an abortion or a job, that was intrinsic to the original feminist movement. And it then sort of morphed into among other things, among other bad ideas, that women, they, it's not that they have a choice, it's that they should be able to have everything and have everything at the exact same time. Now, you can have everything to some degree if you plan out your life. So, for example, a woman can get married and have children and focus on her kids until the kids get into school, then she can work part-time, and then if she wants to work full-time and her kids are perhaps in high school or later, she can certainly do that. Is that going to cause a price to be paid for her corporate advancement? Absolutely. The reason why men are so successful in high-powered jobs and in law firms and medicine, engineering, and corporate work is that they work 
60, 70, 80 hours a week, year after year after year, and they make a lot of sacrifices. They don't go in and out and in and out of the workforce. Women, if they wish to do that, they cannot actually raise children effectively at the full potential. It's not possible because you can't be a full-time mother and a full-time worker indefinitely and do an equally good job in both. Something has to give. So you can parse out your time, you can parse out your work and your focus, and you can do a pretty darn good job, but you may not be able to stay as a partner in the law firm. Well, that angers women because they want to be able to be partner and be a wonderful mother. Well, you know what? You're just not going to be able to do that without destroying your physical and mental health and that of your child. But you can lead a very fulfilling and very satisfying work life while also raising children and doing a wonderful job. And also the secret little dirty truth that a lot of women don't want to acknowledge, but they eventually do, usually when they're over 40 or 50, is that when they look back on their life in middle age and beyond, they almost always, with very few exceptions, sort of like the friend of yours who grew up with a single parent did really well. There's always exceptions. It doesn't mean that the rule doesn't apply. They look back and they say, wow, I really regret not having spent more time with my children and focused on my career because I am not getting the satisfaction I thought from my job. Or they say the opposite. Thank God I dropped out of that job when I got married and had my kids because they have been the joy of my life and I don't regret a single moment of it. I've been a better wife and a better mother because of it and my marriage has even actually been strengthened. They don't like to talk about that until they're old enough where they don't really have anything to lose. And a lot of feminists have started saying this in their 50s and 60s who've said, wow, I, I, I'm alone. I don't have a husband. I don't have children. I had a great career and I'm absolutely miserable. So for young women who are still fed this lie that they can and should pursue a full-time career, number one priority, and then simply defer the husband, marriage, children until later, they are being duped, they are being lied to, and they mm. will pay the price. Something breaks, if not the marriage. Yeah. Always. Sure. But then you end up with this weird kind of uh, snowball domino effect where, okay, so you have happy parents, they have a kid, they're both working, so then they outsource their child to, I don't know, preschool, crash. Um, does that have a negative effect then um, on, on the child? You know, Sheryl Sandberg just announced today that she's leaving Facebook, although now they call it Meta, after 15 years. She was supposed to be there under Zuckerberg for four. She went to 15. She's leaving. Not sure where she's going, retiring, switching, taking a break. I mean, she's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, so she doesn't need the money. She famously, when she first started there, she actually had a, a physical crush, uh, the French word for crib. Uh, we don't use that word in the United States. I guess it's popular in other countries. That's why I'm speaking to it for the non-South African listeners. Um, that crib was kept in her office with her baby in it, in a little side room that she could pop in and out of if the baby needed her while she had a full-time nanny to keep the child fed and warm and dry. Now, she had the means, the, the physical um, and financial means to do that. Many women certainly don't. And yet, I am almost certain that baby did not grow up with the same kind of bond with Sheryl Sandberg that that child grew up with with the nanny because she wasn't really there. She was sort of there on, can you imagine managing a corporation like Facebook? Conference calls, emails, meetings all day long. Maybe she spent three minutes every few hours saying hi to the baby and patting him on the back and then running away. 
Babies need physical presence. They need your time. And obviously they need your awareness and your attention, but you can't just phone it in. You can't just pop in and wave and then leave and have hand off all the other work to someone else. So I see this in my practice a lot. I see children who grow up in two parent households, yes, but both parents are working full time. And if they're middle class, upper middle class, and most of my families are in my practice, they universally will hire somebody part time or full time to take over the tasks that we used to consider basic parenting, driving the kids back and forth to soccer games and school, making food, washing the clothes, um, sometimes even uh, spending time with the kids in the evening over homework or putting them to bed. It can you know, even reach that point. And a lot of the children, especially the ones that are with full-time nannies, like 24-7 live-ins, they report feeling emotionally closer and more bonded to the nanny, to the babysitter, than they do to their own parents. They respect their parents and their success and what they do for them financially in terms of giving them a home, but they don't feel that emotional tie. They don't communicate with them at the same level, sharing secrets, intimate experiences that they do with the nanny. I do not think that you can purchase closeness with another human being. I think you are you are throwing out a lot of red pills here. And what's weird is that what, what you're saying is perfectly normal. It is, as Dr. McCullough said, uh, the antidote to the absurd. And until just recently, it would have just been almost considered a yawn, a boring comment. Yeah, I, I, why are we talking about this? Can we go yeah. get a croissant and a coffee? I mean, tell me something I don't know. Mm -hmm. And yet the fact that you even have to make this observation that this is just to many anathema, this is uh, the equivalent of announcing that men should take women into sexual slavery uh, as they did in the 1200s. Uh, that's, that's the level, that the depth of revolt against these common mm. sense, practical, somewhat to me sort of dull statements. That says a lot about how far that we've gone, meaning how far we've, I would say descended, but it's not even a descent. It's really more of a, an act of confusion of sort of uh, turning our backs on the foundations of wisdom and believing mm. in a very highly narcissistic way that we know better, that we know more than those who came before us for the last 2000 years. As someone said, I think it was Victor Davis Hanson at a talk that I listened to live face to face in Laguna Beach a few months ago, he held up his iPhone and he said, there are people in this country, in this world that believe that because they're holding a phone in their hand that, that is so sophisticated that they, the holder of the phone are smarter than the people who came before them. That this phone represents their achievements it doesn't represent the combined achievements of thousands of years and millions of people's brains and efforts and trial and error in science and technology. They woke up, as the old phrase goes, they woke up on third and thought they hit a triple. I, I suppose there's a there's a correlation. I'm, I'm I'm guessing between I don't know the mass shooters and broken homes. I mean I I I can't imagine mass shoot mass shooting kids come from stable family environments? In general, they don't. There was an exception, I believe, the man in Buffalo that preceded the Uvalde shooting that just happened recently, mm. Buffalo, New York, where seven or eight people were shot and killed. Uvalde, I believe it was 18 or 19, including a shooter and a couple of adults, mostly children at the school. 
there are exceptions. But the Uvalde shooter, the one in Texas who murdered nearly you know, 20 people in the last few weeks, uh, he did not grow up with parents. Uh, I don't even believe he knew one or both of his parents. He lived with his grandmother, who he shot in the face before he went and murdered these school children. He was severely ill, uh, mentally ill. He had been bullied. Uh, he did not appear to have uh, any real strong family support structure. I don't know much about the grandmother, and I think she's lost her ability to speak because a bullet went right through her cheek and passed out the left side of her brain. Um, but she appears to be alive and is, is perhaps going to recover. So we don't know all the information, but I think it can be safely assumed that this boy did not grow up in a stable two-parent household. And many, many of the people who commit violence, and they're mostly... Uh, they're mostly young men, and they're not necessarily young white men, by the way. That's a lie. Uh, we, we conveniently overlook in the media here in the U.S., and I believe that's true around the world, uh, all of the shooters who are non-white. There was one, a Korean man at a university a few years ago who shot a bunch of students. Uh, there was, uh, there's been several black men that have gone uh, wild with gun shootings. And I'm talking about gangs, I mean, you know, sort of mass shooters in the last few years that never, ever reaches the news more than a blip. And then we also have uh, men like the, the black man um, in Wisconsin uh, around Christmas of this past year who took a car and mowed, it, mowed down a group of paraders, including uh, this series of a group of grandmothers who were, who were parading and dancing and killed, uh, I don't know how many, it's 10, 12 people, including a few small children. Uh, but the race was never identified. So this is not a racial issue. I want to make that clear. This is a lack of parent issue. And, and poor parenting uh, and lack of two-parent households now exists across all races. It's certainly much higher among blacks, but it is highly, highly prevalent even among whites. And as we were just speaking about, really even among and, and often among upper middle class whites, you know, mm -hmm. the, the greatest correlator of single parent households, or I would say delayed marriage and, and having a child without a husband uh, is degree of education. So the, the more education you have, the less likely you are to get married, the less likely you are to have a husband, even if you have a child. And the highest degree of education attained in the U.S. is often attained by white women. So more and more white mm -hmm. women, wealthy, when I say wealthy, you know, upper middle class, well-educated white women are not getting married. They're raising children by themselves. They may have the resources to do it financially, but they certainly are not providing the emotional resources or the time that the child needs. And I think that is another reason why we are seeing um, more and more of what you would consider to be uh, well-raised children, meaning not growing up in the hood, not growing up with criminal parents, drug addicts, prostitutes, going off the rails. And it starts in my practice. I see these kids that are becoming mildly autistic. They're not sociable. They're on their phones. They're living in a kind of altered universe. They don't receive the uh, friend connection that they need because most of their activities are sort of bussed around to disparate groups using drivers. They don't have connection with their parents because they don't have a father, they just have a mother. And so these kids start to become disaffected. They become desocialized or they don't become integrated socially. Mm. And that's a really bad uh, path to take because as they become older and they become adults, they start to feel resentment. They don't uh, have a good establishment of emotional values. And then eventually they just start to take that uh, despair and anger and frustration out on the people around them, particularly people that are close to them, like other students at school, their teachers, their neighbors, with whatever weapons they can find. What sort of influence does video games have on kids and families? <laughs> so you, you, 
I get this question asked a lot by parents, and the answer sometimes surprises them. They expect me to say that video games um, provoke violence. I don't believe that that's really true, at least not directly. Meaning that when you're playing a violent game, uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto, where you're shooting prostitutes and robbing banks and capping uh, mafioso, that does not necessarily lead to those actions out in the world among young people, even among adults. So I don't believe that the content of the video games is necessarily the biggest factor. I, I certainly don't think it's helpful. Mm. But, you know, we played video games growing up where we were blowing up ships and uh, shooting bad guys. Um, and a lot of it was not necessarily on the right side of the law. Some of the, the best video games were where you played mm. the bad guy and you, you, you kind of crushed the good. because It's kind of fun to do that. And I don't recall that ever being cited as a cause for um, violent actions on the part of deranged youth growing up. I don't believe that that's really uh, the big problem. What I think the problem is, and this is a much worse problem today than it was 25, 30 years ago because of the technology, is that the video games are now so sophisticated and so endemic in the lives of the children that they're using the same devices to play games that they are to talk on the phone or to use their computer or to chat on social media. Everything has become integrated. Everything has really become a game. And for boys, Boys then create these kind of isolated layers where they live by themselves, they put on their headphones, they turn on their computer, they start playing these games online with other users in different physical locations, sometimes in different countries. And they establish what they think are friendships or relationships online through a game, through an avatar. But they never actually share the same physical space with the people that they play with. They don't have physical somatic experiences with others. They don't see their faces. They don't touch. They're not mm -hmm. wrestling. They're not uh, throwing balls back and forth and, and catching um, objects. I know it sounds kind of silly, but when you touch things, when you hold things, you stay connected to reality. You can't do that when all you're touching uh, is a little, you know, little keyboard, a little, little joystick. And I think that that leads to a kind of um, asocial and then ultimately an antisocial experience of yourself. I think that it creates a distortion of reality because there's no reality check and you start to create an alternate reality, you start to live in a fantasy land that is not healthy. Uh, Mickey Willis, uh, who wrote Plandemic and filmed Plandemic, um, I went to his home um, way back in the fall of 2021. And he said to me that he had to remove the video games from his own household, from his children, because he went to a water park once. And after an hour or two, the kids said, Daddy, can we go home? We're bored. He said, what do you mean? You're at a water park. He said, oh, we really just want to get to the next level in the game. We had to leave it when we left this morning. And he said at that moment, he realized that even the strict controls where they could only play one or two hours on the weekend was not enough. His kids had become so entrenched and addicted to this game that they weren't able to enjoy what would have been like a treat, like going to Disneyland. Like I, I, I went to Disneyland like twice in my entire childhood and I live 45 minutes away. And the one time I remember we, that we went to Disneyland, I was overjoyed. It was like the, I still remember the moment where my father came in and said, my company gave away tickets to Disneyland. You're not going to school today. We're going to Disneyland. I couldn't believe it. It was like a dream come true. These kids were at a water park and there's a sniff. I'd rather go home and play a game. So we took the game away. And the children completely changed that that itchy, antsy irritability that I want to go to my room. I, I don't want to eat tonight, Dad. I want to finish my game. It all went away 
The kids became pleasant, friendly, polite. They wanted to stay at dinner. They wanted to do their homework at the kitchen counter, talk to dad, talk to mom. They pulled back reflexively into that position that children should be, which is connected to their home, their parents, and their friends. And he said, we've never looked back. It's been a couple of years now. My kids are doing great. And I met the kids. They were lovely. I had not met children in years that came up to me, looked me in the eye, shook my hand, introduced themselves, asked me questions, requested that I play a game with them on the couch. I, that hasn't happened to me in years. Most kids don't even look at you. They just kind of mumble something and run mm -hmm. off to their room when you come in and you never see them again when you go to visit parents and, and, and families. So video games are a disaster. They are a, a cancer on our society for children and also for adults, but for different reasons. But I don't think it's because of the content. I think it's because of the addictive, asocial and antisocial nature of the practice of the game itself. Let's uh, change direction slightly. Um, I want to ask your views um, on, um, on homeschooling versus public schooling. Uh, lots of talk about it, particularly in the last couple of years where everybody's been forced to stay indoors and not socialize with everybody. I've heard so many conflicting views on this. My views are crystal clear now. I was ambivalent until about two, three years ago. The conference I mentioned earlier in Orlando with Dr. Peter McCullough and also a Dr. John Littell, Dr. Ryan Cole, and Dr. Ben Carson and Governor Ron DeSantis was hosted by the Florida Parent Home Teaching Education, basically a homeschoolers conference. And there were about 2,000 people there, all families essentially, lots of children and parents. Essentially, the whole state showed up for this event. And it confirmed what I have been thinking and feeling now for the last few years, which is that not only is homeschooling a good option, homeschooling is the only option. In this country, in the United States, we have a school system, both government and private, that has failed. And I believe it is such a failure that it is irredeemable. It cannot be resuscitated. But... I have to interrupt you because the argument that keeps getting leveled is, okay, but homeschooling is antisocial. Where, where are the kids? Where's the discipline, et cetera? I know I get that a lot. And I actually believe that up until a few years ago when I started to speak to people who manage homeschooling education networks and also homeschooled kids who I'd never met before. You know, I always think homeschooled kids are, are kind of some crazy family living in a cornfield in Iowa. Well, they're not. They're, they're your neighbors. They're people living in urban areas, urban environments. They're not all um, conservative Christians, although there certainly are a lot of those because they're so focused on family and good for them. What I discovered both in terms of theory and in practice and in reality, my interactions with the kids, is that the homeschooled children are actually the most well-socialized of all of the children in this country. Really? Why is that? You'd think hmm. that's crazy. Aren't they isolated at home all day long? Actually, they're not. What's interesting about homeschooling is that because the parents are generally well involved in their children's life, certainly the mother is usually managing a lot of the homeschooling. For poor kids, you, you know, you can group them. You can have one parent run one day, another parent run the other day, the groups. So it's not out of the reach of, of people who are not middle class, certainly not. But most of them, you know, most of them are uh, middle class and they have a mother at home. They actually spend very little time on academics. Most of the time spent on academics, at least in the United States, is on waiting and doing busy work because there's such large classes and the teacher has to teach to the bottom that most of the kids in the middle and the top 
wound, they wind up just sitting around and doing nothing most of the day. There's only about 30, 40 minutes of real actual instruction in an eight hour day in the United States in school. The rest of it is just busy work, running around, PE, uh, stuff that does not actually uh, stimulate your intellectual mind. And yet homeschoolers, because they know this and they can teach effectively to the child in the room, they're able to complete a whole day's worth of schoolwork in one or two hours. And then the rest of the day, they spend on activities. And those activities are not generally sitting alone at home drawing. They're activities with other children in the home, or more importantly, they're activities organized with other children who are also homeschooling in the same locale. And that can be trips to the sure. museum, it can be organized sports, it can be actual travel over multiple days to go to um, a lake or a mountain and do science experiments. They're incredibly creative in using their environment and other children to learn and experience life. And a lot of that life, of course, comes through the socialization that occurs when you're with those other people in different environments. So these kids, they're focused, they're aware, they're polite, they're respectful, they develop wisdom, they act more adult-like than the children do in private and public schools. There's more supervision they're held more accountable for their behavior and their actions. So as they get older, these kids are actually far more likely to be confident, to not be on drugs, to be uh, mm. well socialized, to be able to interview for jobs, to be able to win and lose with grace. Most kids can't do that now. You look at the kids that are so-called socialized in the public schools, girls 12, 13 years old are showing up to school in heels, makeup, and crop tops and dolphin shorts. And the teachers just, nah, they shrug their shoulders and say, well, as long as her tits aren't hanging out, totally acceptable. And sometimes they are half hanging out. But, well, the nipple isn't showing, so I guess that's okay. She's 12 years old. This is not uncommon right here in Los Angeles, right here in Santa Monica. And that's the good schools. The bad schools, they're having sex and doing drugs in the bathroom, if not raping one another, especially the transgendered kids. So this idea that somehow children in homeschooling are not socialized is a complete fabrication and it is not based on reality. And if you talk to anybody who does homeschooling, you'll hear exactly what I'm telling you. I would, I wish that more children were in homeschool because we'd have a much better society of children than we have now. I suppose a segue from that, um, and it's related, is, okay, well, you have your, your kids being homeschooled, but is there a benefit of having lots of brothers and sisters? Or like, for example, is, is a single kid um, at a disadvantage. Yes, it's much better to have siblings. I remember when I was in fellowship at UCLA and I was uh, sitting in one of the break rooms with the other fellows and one of them was a uh, female child and adolescent psychiatry fellow. And I, I, I remember every time I would see her and we would talk about different cases, she just seemed to be so affable, so easy to talk to, never ruffled, could kind of handle a lot of the screaming and yelling of the patients, never took things personally, didn't run off and cry in the corner. She would hear sexualized comments and nasty things, harassment, and she just went, eh, whatever. I mean, she she had boundaries, but she she didn't fall apart. She didn't take things personally. And I said, what's your story? And very quickly, I learned that she grew up with five brothers. Wow. Five brothers. She said, I used to wrestle with them. I used to hear what they would say about women. I used to uh, catch them with porn magazines. I used to see them beating each other up. But what I learned 
was that they were the most loving and protective people that I had in my life, and they cared deeply about me, despite their aggression and their hypersexuality. So I did not conclude, as many single daughters, single girls do, that aggression and sexuality are bad and evil. They're an inherent part of a good man. And good men can be aggressive, they can be sexual, but they can also be very protective and very loving and very respectful to women, because that was my experience. That's something that single children don't get. I'm mm -hmm. talking specifically about girls. Uh, with boys, it's a different issue. You know, boys don't uh, grow up with, meaning single boys, don't have brothers or sisters. They don't grow up with the opportunity to take care of their siblings. So they become very narcissistically focused yeah. and very spoiled. But what happens in a situation, Mark, where you do have a, a good, wholesome, traditional family, and let's say there's a brother and a sister, and one of them goes completely off the rails, and <laughs> and the mother or the father sits one day going, what did I do wrong? You were dealt a bad set of cards. You know, genetics is unpredictable, and there are kids who are simply born with bad genes. That's why you have different temperaments. Uh, one child, uh, sometimes twins even, uh, who share a lot of genes, they actually can develop very, very different temperaments. So the environment mm. can affect the genes as well. Nature so versus this, nurture, sorry. Well, it, it is, you know, and, and you see, uh, there's a lot of twin studies that are done, and, and you can see that that, that genetics and, and nature really make a huge, there's a, there's a huge effect for both on the environment. So you can have the same nurturing in the, in the household, but different genetics and you have a very, very different outcome. I don't think that uh, you can you can manage and control all variables with children. And good parents will tell you, look, I just, I do what I can and I just sort of let the kid go and see how he's gonna, what he's gonna become. There are always outliers, there are always exceptions. You get rotten kids that come from great households and vice versa. There's no guarantees. All that we can really do as a society is to establish good norms and then assume that most of the time it's going to work out pretty well because what's the alternative well the alternative is what we've done now what we've done recently we have rebooted our computers since march and april of 2020 we shut them all down metaphorically speaking our computers our society we shut them down we turned them off we rebooted them in the last three six nine months with a totally different code and that code is this, we have redefined our social norms, and I say social in the broadest sense of the term, we've redefined what is good and bad for ourselves, our children, our spouses, our communities, based upon the most fearful among us, not the most courageous. So now we have this infusion of fear into our society, which is now determining all of our decision-making and what's good on a social level. And that's what's leading to um, chronic masks and shots and all of this. So we've done this on, in, in multiple areas. We've rebooted under fear instead of under courage. We're also continuing and, and, and rebooting to some degree under a sense of narcissism rather than on generosity. It's me, 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 me. Mm. I am the most important thing in the world. Everything has to revolve around me. That's what children are being taught. That's what young adults are being taught. Fear and narcissism are two horrible coded systems to base your value system on. So if you go back to the original value structure, which is we support whatever is courageous and we support whatever is generous and not focused, hyper-focused on the self, 
then all these good things follow. You see groups, you see brothers, sister, parents, uh, uh, families, you see civic organizations and churches rather than federal government intrusion. There's all of these ripple effects that come along with rejecting what works, rejecting original values, even though no society is ever going to be perfect. And yeah. as it's, it's been said for probably two or 300 years, you know, the enemy of the good is the quest for the perfect. And a lot of these good intentions come from trying to place social norms and laws on outliers. And you, you've brought this up now two or three times, and I think it's an important point because you often hear these retorts from people. Yeah, but I know a guy who did really well, and he did the opposite of what you said. And I said, great, I'm really happy for him. How does that disprove what I'm saying? Yeah. 99% of the time, it's not the case. So you have to base your rules and your expectations on the 99%, not on the 1%, or you're going to wind up with a very broken society. I feel like a, a damaging vector towards all of this is this um, excessive liberalism. Uh, we have to keep we have to keep progressing, keep progressing, and leave behind what might be good. Uh, I mean, it, it seems that it seems to me that this 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 focus on hyper individualism is extremely chaotic. Well, I want to be clear that the yes, I mean hyper individualism. I would say what you're the way that you're using it is 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 basically narcissism, mm. uh, which is which is destructive. And I think that in the same sense that hyper nationalism becomes ultra nationalism, there is something that is not inherently bad about individualism or nationalism. I think it, they're actually necessary because somebody who has absolutely no narcissism at all, no healthy narcissism, is a martyr and is self-sacrificial. And those people wind up becoming very angry and resentful because they've given, you probably know people like this, they've given everything to fill in the blank, their husband, their community, uh, their church. And at some point they break because there really is nothing that is altruistic. We always expect something in return from what we give. And I think that's healthy. Because if we didn't ever expect anything in return, then we'd all just sort of give everything and we just collapse. Like there, there, there's no sustainability that way. But if we give everything and we get nothing, nothing at all back, then we wind up blowing up. Now, in order to proceed, in order to succeed as a society and as individuals, we have to have some degree of individual pursuit of our own interests. I mean, that's what capitalism is ultimately. We also need to have some sense of nationalism, borders, language, culture, or our nation state collapses, which is what's happening on the macro level. But when you take things way too far in either direction, you wind up with an imbalance. What I think we've done recently, oddly, is we've gone in one extreme on the first and the other extreme on the second. So we become hyper-individualistic, meaning highly, highly pathologically narcissistic on the one hand, on the micro level. And yet on the macro level, we've completely turned our backs on our nation state. We've actually tossed that in the gutter. We've said there is no nation, there is no border, everything is one world, we're all international now. Even Superman is no longer fighting for truth, justice in the American way. He's fighting for uh, revenge, um, redistribution, and great international affairs. He's basically an EU soldier. He's like a, a UN guy with a blue cap on running around in Africa, you know, ready to run uh, and, and hide under the umbrella when it starts raining. So that kind of 
bifurcation of hyper hyper individualism high degree of narcissism on every individual level and then turning your backs on your larger community is a real recipe for disaster because you wind up with a world and this is largely what we have now of people who are all running around pursuing their own interests all only interests at the expense of everyone else and they have absolutely nothing really larger to live for they're not trying to preserve anything of value except their own stuff their own possessions and when that happens uh, I mean look around uh, look mm. what we've got we've got Tower of Babel no linguistic purity in any countries we've got this complete live you know live and let live ideology of uh, immigrants from other parts of the world in the West who don't share any of the values yeah. we're, we're wrecking the communities you know from Sweden down to to England that's happening in the United States as well if you don't have essentially a shared set of values, culture, language, you cannot exist as a people. You will simply devolve into tribalism. And so I think that that excessive narcissism, as you speak of, combined with the anti-nation has really uh, wreaked havoc on our, our modern world. I know that there isn't a formula, but if you were to create the equation to say a successful or a happy family, what would some of those variables be? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to focus on establishing the sanctity of the husband-wife relationship. That's the first thing that has to be codified. And even after the children are born, the parents, the husband and the wife, have to have decided and continue to support the decision that they, their relationship, is primordial. That will serve above all else as the source of success and sustenance for their children even when it means their children have to make sacrifices. Because the alternative mm. is you place your children first. And when your children come first, all sorts of bad things happen. They start to become hyper-individualized, as you say, narcissistic. They cannot lose the I am in the center of the world fantasy that every infant is born into, which you must lose in order to become an adult. You must lose it. It's a developmental necessity because all they see are parents doting on them. The triangle, the husband, the wife, the child, flips from the top two apices of the triangle looking at one another, husband and wife at looking at one another, and the child looking up to the parents, and it flips to this. It flips to husband and wife looking downward at the child, and the child looking upward, seeing only faces looking at him, not looking at one another. That is so important, and it is so overlooked in, in the West. Husband and wife must come first. Mother and father, their roles as mother and father come very close but they come a close second. After that, obviously there's all kinds of other things that you have to look at. You have to uh, decide on how to share values as parents. Split values, antithetical values are a disaster for a good family. The parents must be on the same page. Children are so good at splitting parents off, especially when parents are from mixed marriages of politics. And I think that's a real disaster mixed marriage politics really wreck children i i was uh i was gonna ask you something but you stopped short and i forgot what i was gonna ask <laughs> <laughs> i stopped because it looked like you wanted to say something no i was agreeing with you <laughs> yeah this this is a, a a big problem in our society now with especially now since the sort of pandemic craze opened mm. up the core values of a lot of uh of humans a lot of marriages have collapsed because 
what they've realized is that they may agree superficially on certain things. At their core, they really stand for very different values. Mm. And now they're, they're left with this, this horrible Sophie's choice. Do we stay together miserable for the children until they graduate from high school? Or do we just sort of pull the Band-Aid off and acknowledge to ourselves and to our kids that we, mom and dad, we don't agree on anything of real substance. And if we've, if we've figured that out and we've, we've acknowledged it, uh, are we going to harm our children more by just divorcing and living you know, nice separate lives or staying together and living a lie? Now, I obviously believe that it's better to live in truth than in lies, so I have my, my take on it. But a lot of parents, understandably, I'm very, very sympathetic with this, they do not know what to do. They're very, they're in a big, big struggle right now with how to pursue, uh, maintain, grow their family unit when there's such a schism at a fundamental level. I remember now what I wanted to ask you, and, and that is um, <clears throat> how important then in a in a successful family, in a traditional sense, is, say, spirituality? Well, spirituality is religion without accountability. I'm not a big fan of spirituality. Okay, well, um, I think you get what I'm saying. I'm, 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 try, I know, I'm, I'm trying I'm challenging to challenge you. I know what you're I'm trying, trying to say. Yeah, I'm trying to make the meta point of atheism versus being sure. religious. I understand. I'm challenging you in a cheeky way because I hear this sort of namaste culture here in LA. You know, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. Really? So where do you derive your morality from? Well, I derive it from what does good. Well, what is good? Well, what makes me feel good? Oh, so if you feel bad one day, then it changes. Well, that's not what I meant. I mean, they get all tangled up, you know. Okay, a Christian, a Christian family versus an atheist family. Yeah, well, it's, 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 more, it's more, uh, more, more honest and fair. I mean, yeah. basically, you know, we're going to put aside, you know, Confucianism and Buddhism and, and Islam and all that just to look at Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, values and, and religion are, are really critical, I think, not just for the West, but really for the whole world, even though the world is not all Judeo-Christian, <clears throat> because they, it, the religion, uh, provides a source of dictates, rules, and values. So whether or not you believe in God is completely irrelevant to leading a good life and, and being in a good society. You can aspire to believe in God. You can act as if you believe in God, and you will do just as much good as someone who fully believes in God and also acts well. Also, if someone believes in God and just doesn't really act in a godly way, that person is doing a lot more damage to society than the non-believer who says, look, I don't really know. In fact, I don't even I don't even really buy this idea of God, mm. but I know that the values do good, and so I'm going to go to church, I'm going to act them out in my life, I'm going to pretend, I'm going to live as if I am a God-fearing person. That person will be a much, much better citizen and a much better father or mother than the person who just simply dials it in and then goes and does his own thing. So I think it's important to note, a lot of people will yell and scream when I say this because they say, well, I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. You can't force me. I can be a good atheist. I say, really? Okay, you, you can, you can be a good atheist, but ultimately you don't really have any higher authority or higher power that dictates what you believe is good. You get it all from society. In other words, your God is really man. Your God is government. Your God is not an inaccessible entity that has given you parameters with which to live your life. You can't, as an atheist, really convince anyone that there's something immoral about murder. You can say that it's mean, you can say that it, it's hurtful, but is it really immoral? 
how is it immoral if you don't have any moral values? Well, I have moral yeah. values. Well, where are they? They come from law. Well, where does law come from? It comes from man. Well, ultimately, to some degree, law comes from God. It comes from Judeo-Christian values because all of our laws, all of our political essentials are based on morals that come from a biblical view of life. So whether you believe in God or not, you cannot avoid that truth, that fact, that reality. And I think you'd be better off to at least accept, acknowledge, and ascribe to it, even if you don't want to go to church. Mm. Because if you don't, you're just making things more difficult for yourself. I know you have to run. So let me read a comment from Donna. She says, uh, my older daughter, four, started bedwetting after um, her dad was deployed. I'm guessing that refers to being sent away for a job. Uh, she basically has no parents, so I quickly resigned, and she immediately stopped wetting the bed, which is a plus. So I have no regret being the the mother of my kids, and I have no regret having less money. That's a beautiful story, and it exemplifies what I argue and preach to some degree to families in my practice and people I speak with in my community, which is that when you have a child, you are making a commitment. You are carrying a responsibility for another life that is going to, must necessarily require some sacrifice on your part. And if you are not willing to make any sacrifices as a parent, you should not have that child. This woman saw that, she made the sacrifice, and she's now reaping the results with the improvement in the condition of her child. And she should and and does take credit for that. And she should be proud of it. And she should, as she did, send messages and tell others to help to encourage other parents to do the same. Mark McDonald, it's always a pleasure. Oh, wait, I have to ask you where people can find you. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, my next book is going to be coming out hopefully within a month or so, Freedom from Fear. It's not out yet, so I'm going to make a big announcement on social media when it does come out. But in about a month or so, if you're not checking in on me, go to Amazon and just look for Freedom from Fear or Google my name uh, or type it into the, the search field on Amazon and you should be able to find me in the second book. But in the meantime, uh, my literary website where I po post all of my links and writings and everything I, I do in, in written form is dissidentmd.com dissidentmd.com and I also publish a Substack account under the same name which you can find on Substack or you can link through that homepage and then everything that I don't write in other words when I run my mouth I put that on a different website which is my podcasting site which is informed dissent and the website is informeddissentmedia.com uh, and and my co-podcast host Dr. Jeff Barkey and I interview lots of interesting people and we put them up about once a week uh, 30 to 40 minute uh, audio video interviews of people from around the world. So Informed Descent is the podcast and Dissident MD is the literary website. I actually didn't know that you had a podcast, so I think I'm going to start yes. listening to it. Um, we do. Now, we have a podcast. Well, now with the, with the news that your book is coming, I'm going to have to buy it, read it, and then get you back on. <laughs> I'd love to. I'm going to be doing a lot of traveling right before it comes out. And when I get back uh, from all of my, my shenanigans in August, hopefully the book will be ready to go available and you'll have time to uh, peruse it if not read it entirely and ask some intelligent questions as you always do <laughs> <laughs> i think you're just buttering me up <laughs> mark mcdonald it's always a pleasure thank you for joining me in the trenches thank you germ don't go anywhere my name is germ this is germ warfare the battle of ideas
If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.